Hey, can we, can we commit to that? Can we commit to the whole time I share tonight um, to, to have hearts that are tilled up and ready to receive soil? You're going to need it. Can I just tell you that? You're going to need hearts that are tilled up and ready to receive the Word, okay? And I'm not going to say anything, hopefully, of my own volition, but what the Word says, and I'm going to try to encourage you, to challenge you the best as I can. Now, it's the new year, right? And most of us have probably made some sort of commitment, some sort of thing that's going to change about who you are, about how you live, okay? And maybe you haven't made a public declaration, a public, uh, you know, resolution, but most of us have at least privately in our, in our own heads, in our own hearts, thought about something that needs to change in our lives. Highlighted something. Now listen, our tendency is to think more about our lives in the natural realm and to make adjustments there, to start making adjustments there. And there's obviously nothing wrong with wanting to, uh, to look better and to do better for yourself in this life. But if you were here last week, you know I talked about how important it is to be real about what you really need. How many of you were here for that? Okay, because we're going to kind of continue on that a little bit. How important it is to be real about what you really need. So you can ask yourself this question, where am I at spiritually? We're just going to dive in. Is that cool? Where am I at Spiritually, where is my relationship with the God that I gave my life to all those years ago? And if you're young, that might have been a year ago or six months ago. But where is my relationship with that God that I gave everything, that I said, Lord, take everything? Where is my relationship with him? Because I used to pray all the time. But maybe it's been hard to even open your mouth when you get into a time of prayer. You used to love to read the Word. Loved it. But you don't even know where your Bible's at. Maybe you used to love to, to serve in the church or come to church and worship and see your friends and all those kinds of things. But maybe lately, for the past however long, you've had more excuses on why not to come to church than you have on why to be there. Something's going on. You used to be a generous and cheerful giver. And you're still generous, but you're not nearly as cheerful about putting money in the bucket. <laughs> Am I stepping on anybody yet? Okay, real quick, let's pause. Commit that you're going to have an amen and a hanky at some point. Okay? Okay, the, the quiet crowd drives me nuts. Because I kn- You got me, Stella? If you have to say amen multiple times to cover those who might not say, you know, amen, 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 amen. Okay, whatever you got to do. You used to, thank you. Oh my word, she has a hanky. There used to be a lot of peace and there used to be a lot of joy, but now there's way more frazzle. There's way more cranky than there is peace and there is joy. You used to really feel the presence of the Lord a lot in your life. And now you're just kind of wondering, am I left all alone? Has God forgotten me altogether? Now listen, I'm reading somebody's mail here. It's at least one person because you got 100 people in there. I just read somebody's mail, if not many of us's mail. And maybe you've been in this place 
for a long time and you haven't known what to do, but it's a new year. And your thought is, I cannot go another year where I'm at. I cannot go another year the same place that I'm at. Or maybe this is true of you, but you had no idea. You've just been kind of in la-la land. You, you haven't thought much about it until now. And the reality of your spirituality has just hit you in the face. You're Christian. You're a Christian who is out of fellowship with God. We're there, right? Are we there? A few amens? Because even if it's not you, it's an amen, an agreement for somebody. And if it's not agreement for somebody in this church, you probably know somebody that fits this bill. And so you're going to have a way to encourage them tonight. So if it's not you, don't shut down. Plug in. Okay? Wow, I'm so intense. I just got a cramp in my side. Oh, my word. Should we do some stretches real quick? Oh, okay. If you see me keel over a couple times. Ugh. Listen, you know what? It doesn't really matter how you're able to see that, uh, if you were able to see it on your own, or if it took someone else showing that to you, pointing that out to you, you can't go another day living the same way. Amen? In fact, if that's you, I want you to say that. I can't go another day living my life the same way. Now, hopefully that wasn't just... Hey, it's up there. Hopefully it wasn't just humoring me. Hopefully that truly has been some sort of prayer as you enter this new year. I cannot live another day living the same way as I lived last year, maybe the year before, maybe the year before that. Let's look at Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Now I'm going I'm to show you the, the condition, the cause, the cry in the cure, the condition, the cause, the cry, and the cure. And you know, they all start with C, but you know how I am weird about that kind of stuff. So the condition, the cause, the cry, and the cure. And I'm going to show it to you from a very disturbing, disturbing season in King David's life. Okay, now there's a lot of, lot of patterns. You see this pattern all over scripture from a lot of pretty high people, key figures. But I chose David, one, because he's one of the most familiar people to us. We know about David and Okay, Bathsheba. We know about David and Goliath and David and Bathsheba, okay? Some of us read more stories than others. That's okay. So a story's familiar to us, but listen, this was the man that was literally called the man after God's own heart, and yet he failed. I don't know about you, but there's some sort of encouragement in that for me. Is there an encouragement in that for you? Another reason I chose him is because we have the privilege of seeing into his thoughts and his prayers because of the Psalms. Amen? So we're in Psalm 51. And what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to, I'm going to use uh, my Bible for some other places in, in Kings. But I'm actually going to use the message version to go through Psalm 51. Okay? So I want you to turn there and I want you to see the message version kind of, it's a little different in the way that it lays it out. Um, it's not so much an interpretation as it, or translation as it is an interpretation, but it's always pretty good. You get a good idea of what is really being said there. So I'm going to use the message version of this. And uh, one of the reasons I want to do that is because of a lot of the phrasing that we're going to read that comes from David's mouth. 
according to Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message. A lot of the phrasing is actually ways that we ourselves, in our vernacular, might express some of our thoughts, feelings, and desires to the Lord. In fact, as we're moving forward, you may literally see a phrase that you have said over and over over the last months and years. Okay? You ready? Psalm 51, the message version. And you can read along. This is verses 1 through 3. Generous in love, God, give grace. Huge in mercy, wipe out my bad record. Scrub away my guilt, soak out my sins in your laundry. I know how bad I've been. My sins are staring me down. You're the one I violated and you've seen it all, seen the full extent of my evil. You have all the facts before you. Whatever you decide about me is fair. Now this right here is the condition that David is in. And he writes this just before or just after Nathan the prophet came and confronted him. In fact, if you want to turn there, 2 Samuel 12, you should already be there. He wrote this shortly after the prophet Nathan came and confronted him. He came to David, and Nathan said, David, you will never believe what just happened. David's like, dude, what happened? Nathan said, there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little lamb, which he brought. Uh, He bought and he nourished and he grew it up together with him and his children and it would eat of his bread. In other words, it would eat from his table and drink of his cup and lie on his chest. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling, the rich man was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. What he did instead was he took the poor man's little lamb, the only one that he had, and prepared it for the traveler who had come to him. It says, then David's anger burned greatly against the man. I can't believe that happened. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold. Because he did this thing and had no compassion. And Nathan said to David, you're that man. You are that man. See what had happened is David had been walking out on his balcony one night. And he saw a woman named Bathsheba taking a bath. And we know she was taking a bath and not a shower because her name is Bathsheba. Not shower Sheba. you You have to get things theologically correct. I mean, it's important. And so David asked about her, and what he found out was is that he was the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who was actually one of his mighty men. Anybody ever heard of David's mighty men that he fought with, he was close to? Uriah was one of his mighty men. And it says that David sent for her, slept with her, and then sent her home. And it turns out that Bathsheba got pregnant because of that encounter. And so David began scrambling. 
And what he does is he tries to cover his failure by sending word to Joab, who was the leader of his army, and saying, hey, bring Uriah home. And what he had in mind was that Uriah would come home and he'll be excited to see his wife and get some good fried chicken. (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) Sleep with his wife. Boom. She's pregnant. It wasn't me, it was Uriah. But Uriah, he didn't take to his comfortable bed and beautiful wife. He wouldn't do it while his friends, his co fighters, whatever, were out in the, in the war. And so what he did is he camped right there at the palace doors in front of David's palace's door and slept right there. David's like, Dah! So another night he says, okay, okay, okay. Oh, bring him in. Because they were friends, right? He was one of his mighty men. Amen? Amen, 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 amen. And this time he eats with him. And drinks with him. And it says that he got him drunk. What was his plan? Well, if he's drunk, surely he's going to want some fried chicken. Amen? Amen. Uriah wouldn't go home. Still wouldn't go home. David's desperate at this point. So he sends word to Joab. Bring Uriah back out into battle and put him on the front lines where he will be killed. Uriah does get killed, and David marries Bathsheba. And they have a son. But look at 2 Samuel 11, verse 27, just right before chapter 12, so you should be right there. It says, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. The man, after God's own heart, had just broken the heart of God. Let me say that again. The man after God's own heart had just broken the heart of God. David found himself at a place spiritually that he never would have dreamed that he would have been. Doing things that he never could have imagined that he himself was doing. I mean, he didn't go out to war. Are you kidding me? That's who he was. David and Goliath, right? Sling, 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 boom. This is him. This is what he's known for. He's a warrior. This, how could he not go to war? But he didn't go out, did he? Are you kidding me? And then he enters into an obvious law-breaking, home-wrecking relationship. Really? King David? Really? And if that didn't make things worse, he murdered one of his very own mighty men to cover up his sin. Are you tracking with me? Not as many amens and hankies. I don't know about you, but it sounds like King David needs a serious New Year's resolution, (laughs) you know? That's the condition he's in. This is where he's at. This is why he's saying this. Let's talk about the cause. Let's talk about why he ends up there. Now, again, I'm reading out of the message version. But the message version of, um, oh, probably verse 4 or so, Maybe verse 7. says, I've been out of step with you for a long time. So it says in the message version. Some of you may be reading the message version. I've been out of step with you for a long time. In the wrong since before I was born. In other words, I know that I'm a sinner and that I'm a sinner from my birth. 
I know that I have a sin nature, but that's not the issue. The issue is that I've been out of step with you for a long time. What you're after, God, is truth from the inside out. Now, it would be very easy to think that David just failed out of the blue. You know what I mean? Satan came, all of a sudden just shoved him off the cliff of morality. You know what I mean? Oh, oh, what just happened? But that's not how it happened. That's never how it happens. Amen? Because big failures always follow small acts of disobedience. Big failures always follow small acts of disobedience. David was on the balcony that night that he saw Bathsheba because he was not where he was supposed to be. If you look at 2 Samuel 11, the very first verse, it says, Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle. Everybody say, go out. Come on, with fervor. That David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed home at Jerusalem. Short of the long, coming in and going out <coughs> is a phrase that you see all over the Bible. In the Old Testament, it refers to war. Okay, Coming in is when Israel came in from war. The first place that they went after coming in from war is they would go to the temple and they would stay in the presence of the Lord. They would worship him there. And that's what gave them, gave them their strength to actually go out to get refreshed. They got refreshed and they would go back out. So it's about worship. Coming in is really a picture of being continually filled. That's the way Paul says it in the New Testament. Being continually filled by the power and presence of God. Coming in to get continually filled. And the going out, if, if coming in is about worshiping, going out is really about witnessing because they would go out and they would show the nations that their God was the true God. You might remember in uh, Deuteronomy 7 where God's talking to the people of Israel and he says, I chose you because you were the smallest nation. I chose you to be the answer, the light to all nations because you were the smallest nation. And the reason he did that because if Israel, as small as they were, were winning these battles, then their God must be the one true and living God. Amen? Amen. So coming in is a, is a picture of being continually filled. To go out is to, is to walk in your calling. Now that's simple enough, right? It's to engage in the battle for your soul. It's to engage in the battle for the souls of those around you. It's about being a doer of the word, not just a hearer of the word. Remember James talks about, but being a doer of the word, going out, letting people know how great your God is. So if coming in is a picture of being continually filled, going out is a picture of being continually poured out. And these are the two main areas that we have to keep in line if we're going to live in him and move in him and have our being in him. Amen? Because if you stop being filled up, you will stop pouring out. Isn't that true? And if you're pouring out without being filled up, then what in the Sam Hill are you pouring out? Isn't that true? Because when you run out of spirit, all you have left to pour out is flesh. Let me say that again. When you run out of spirit, all you have left is to pour out flesh. Now let me ask you this. Could it be that David didn't go out because he didn't really come in. Isn't that what happens to us as believers? 
Isn't that what happens when our, our fellowship with the Lord is not what it should be? We, we don't serve him. We don't really want to worship. We can't seem to bring ourselves to pray. We don't want to be in his word. We're not going to give of our time, our talent, our tithe. We're not going to do those things. Worst of all, we're really not going to walk out our calling. And he created us with a purpose, and no longer are we going to walk it out. You guys hear what I'm saying? Hey, don't feel, feel free to stay, man. I'm not bothered. I see you leaving, but I guess it's because somebody's crying. I don't hear it. All I hear is the Holy Spirit talking to me. It's all good. Did you hear what I said? When we're not in right relationship, we won't walk out our calling. Now think about David. He was a warrior, yet he didn't go out to war. He was a warrior who didn't go out to war. In fact, it says, that he, it says that he walked out on the balcony. Remember, he walked out on the balcony. And in the Hebrew, that word walked actually has the indication that he was pacing. He was pacing back and forth on the balcony. He's just kind of there. Maybe he was frazzled. Maybe he was frantic. Maybe he was cranky. Why? Because he wasn't where he was supposed to be. Isn't that true? But he was king. So he must have come in to worship, right? Because a king can't get by with skipping church. People would notice, dang, where's the king? He's fishing. <laughs> so it can't be that he didn't come in. It must be about the way he came in. Listen to me carefully. This is something I read this week. We would be pretty short-sighted to think that this was the beginning of the chain of events David followed all the way down to adultery and murder. David showed his disregard for God's plan for marriage many years ago before he took, oh, before he took more than one wife, when he took more than one wife. It's 1 Samuel 25, 2 Samuel 3, talks about that. David's practice of adding wives showed a lack of romantic restraint and an indulgent of his passions. This corrupt seed, sown long ago, has grown unchecked long enough and will now begin to bear bitter fruit. I don't know if you knew this, but in Deuteronomy 17, God's talking to the people of Israel, and he's always, he always knows what's going on and what's coming up. And he's like, you know, there's going to come a day where you're going to ask for a king like all the other nations. You're going to want a king just like them. And I'm going to give you one. We know who the first king was, right? King Saul. And he gives a few little rules that, that, you know, I'm going to give it to you, but here's a couple things you need to keep in mind. You know, you're already off by wanting a king like the other nations. So let's at least get some boundaries on this. Several things he laid out. One of the things was, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Now, I don't know if you know much about King Solomon, David's son, but sometimes the apple doesn't far, fall from, far from the tree, and sometimes that tree's got more apples on it than the one that came from. <laughs> Isn't that true? First Kings 11 talks about Solomon, how he had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines. That's a lot of fried chicken. You know what I'm talking about? That's a lot of fried chicken. And his wives turned away his heart. Something else I read. As I think of what happened, I am sure of this. 
that it did not happen all at once. This matter of Bathsheba was simply the peak of something that had been going on in his life for 20 years. Therefore, staying home from the battle merely provided opportunity for the long-standing lack of romantic restraint and indulgence of passion to display itself. Remember what he said? I've been out of step with you for a long time. In the wrong since before I was born, but that's not the issue. My sin nature is not the issue. I have to deal with that. But I haven't. I've been out of step with you for a long time. What you're after is truth from the inside out. David realized that he was not in a good spiritual place. And so he said to himself, I can't go another day living my life the same way. And he cried out. Let's talk about the cry. At the end of verse 6 in the message, it says, Enter me then. Conceive a new true life. Soak me in your laundry and I'll come out clean. Scrub me and I'll have a snow white life. Tune me in to the foot tapping songs. Set these once broken bones to dancing. Don't look too close for blemishes. Give me a clean bill of health. God, make a fresh start in me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Shape a Genesis week from the chaos of my life. Isn't that good? Because the earth was formless and void. Remember we talked about that a couple weeks ago, how sometimes our lives are formless and void, sometimes chaotic and empty. So he realized that he's not been filled up. He hasn't been filled up. But he knows that God can bring that peace and that order to his life. Amen? Look what he says next. Don't throw me out with the trash or fail to breathe holiness in me. We know it as, cast me not away from your presence, O God. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. And he says, bring me back from gray exile. Put a fresh wind in my sails. I love that. Bring me back from gray exile, put a fresh wind in myself. See, he's been living in the gray. You guys hear what I'm saying? He said it himself. Well, Eugene Peterson interpreted what he was saying as living in the gray, but that makes total sense, right? He wasn't living all out black, but he wasn't living out all out white either. He wasn't completely hot or cold. He was what? Come on, people, what? He was lukewarm. It's almost like, and that's why he says, don't cast me away from your presence. Don't throw me out with the trash. It's almost like somehow he knew the book of Revelations was going to come where Jesus says, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I'm going to throw you out with the trash. Those are harsh words, but those are real words. This is part of the gospel that we call the good news. Amen? So David is crying out for God to revive his heart. And he's crying out for God to restore his calling. Look what he says next. Give me a job teaching rebels your ways so that the lost can find their home or way home. Well, that was the whole, that was the whole calling of Israel, right? That they would be a light to all the nations. But it was also considered the call for every Israelite, just like it's the call 
for every believer. Amen? Commute my death sentence, God, my salvation, God. And I'll sing anthems to your life-giving ways. Unbutton my lips, dear God, and I'll let loose with your praise. Now, we all know that David was a warrior, yes. But what's also true is that his success had always come because his first place was as a worshiper. Isn't that true? A man after God's own heart. David the undignified. David the unabandoned worshiper. David who was willing to get down in his skimmies and skivvies, whatever, and, and go to town worshiping. That's him. He was a great warrior because he was first a great worshiper. But, but I want you to look at what he says next. This is verse 16 and 17, but this is the way the message says it. Going through the motions doesn't please you. A flawless performance is nothing to you. Now we come down to it, don't we? David had gotten to the place where he went in, but he didn't press in. And that's the difference. I think a lot of us can relate to that. I think we, we see a powerless church that know how to come in but they don't know how to press in. I hope that never is, is true about us. Heart-shattered lives ready for love don't for a moment escape God's notice. Heart-shattered lives ready for love don't for a moment escape God's notice. Now we're familiar with that Psalm 51 verse 17 to say something like this. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. I love the way the New Living Translation says it. Listen to me because this is it. This is it, you guys. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart. Listen to me carefully. We are going into another year. And some of you are like, that has been my cry. This is my condition. I know the cause. And you're ready for this year, the rest of your life, to look completely different. You're ready for that. It's like I can't go another day living the same way. I can't do it. Can I tell you that there ain't no resolution that's going to get that job done. The key to revival in your heart, because remember, that's what he's asking. That's what his cry, revive me, is repentance. The key to revival, the key to the change that you've been looking for, the key to the new year full of promise and blessing. I'm not saying you're going to get rich, but you can certainly go through situations with a peace and joy rather than frantic and cranky. Isn't that true? It ain't going to happen. A New Year's resolution ain't going to do it. The key to revival is repentance. And I'm not talking about, oops, I got caught, sorry. That's not what I'm talking about. And I'm not talking about, man, my life stinks. Maybe I should get back into that Jesus stuff. That's not what I'm talking about either. Look what he says in in verse 4 and 6. You're the one I've violated, God. You've seen it all. You've seen the full extent of my evil. The NLT does verses 3 and 4 like this. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. 
Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. If you go on to read after Nathan says, thou art the man, you are the one I'm, I'm describing here. His response wasn't, well, you know, I was up there and it was kind of hazy out. And I thought, I thought it was a goat, you know. It wasn't anything like that. He didn't try to make excuses. He didn't try to go in a different direction. He didn't try to soften the blow of this. He said, oh my God, I have sinned against the Lord. Immediately, he had what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians, godly sorrow. Paul says godly sorrow brings repentance. Not godly sorrow brings, I'm I'm sorry, but brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. I'll say it again. Our best resolutions can never take the place of true repentance. Our best resolutions, people, cannot take the place of true repentance. You want the change. You want to live different. You want the power of God in your life. You want all those things that we read about, we talk about, we pray about, we lift our hands about. The key to that, and I I say this with, I will put all my chips in on this one. This isn't conjecture. (laughs) Okay? I will put all my chips in is that the key to revival for a person's soul, for the heart of a church, the effectivity of a church, has to do with repentance. Not commitments to do this or to do that or to change strategies. It is about repentance. What does true repentance look like? Revelations 2 verse 5 says, Therefore, remember where you have fallen. Remember, some of your versions say, remember the heights from which you have fallen. Remember the place that you used to be. Remember how you used to love God. How you used to be hungry for his word. How you used to be um, excited about prayer and going to church. Remember those days. Remember the heights from which you have fallen. And repent and do those things that you did at first. I mean, it's as simple as that. Repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else, I'm coming to you and I'm going to remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. And that's not so much talking about salvation as much as it is the effectivity of your going out. Because as long as we're religious, we're going to go out. Ain't that true? Man, who wants to go out with no power behind it? You hear what I'm saying? Can I get an amen? Or else I'm coming to you to remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Lampstands are effectiveness. It's our ability to go out with success. But until we repent, we will go out empty. But when we repent, he promises to fill us up. Isn't that true? It's all over the word. Pick a book, find it, and you see it. In Acts 3, verse 9, it says, therefore repent and return, which is the whole idea of repentance. It's not, I'm sorry, but I'm going to keep doing it. It's repent and return. Repent and return. Say it with me. Repent. One more time. And return to the things that you did before. So that 
your sins may be wiped away in order that, let me say it, start over. Therefore, therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You guys see that? I love it because that's essentially what he says next, 18 and 19. Psalm 51, 18 19. Make Zion the place you delight in. Repair Jerusalem, Jerusalem's broken down walls. Then you'll get real worship from us. Acts of worship, small and large, including all the bulls they can heave onto your altar. In other words, the fruit of repentance is getting back to giving God all that you are and all that you have. Let me say it again. The fruit of repentance is getting back to giving God all that you are and all that you have. How many of you are ready to get back to giving God everything? I remember where I was at when I said, God, I give you everything. I had been saved for a year. A few things changed, but a lot hadn't. And I was frantic, and I was cranky, and I was married. My wife can tell you all about those days. And I've had a few of those along the way. I was reading a book, and the Lord spoke to me. He said, that's what you need to do. What this guy in this book did, that's what you need to do. And my prayer was very simple. Lord, I give you everything. I give you my life, however you want to use me, whatever you want to do in me, to me, and through me. I give it all to you. And guess what? That was roughly 19 years ago. And along the way, I found myself in David's condition. Have you? What's sadder is recently I found myself in David's condition. Weak, frail, frantic, concerned, oh so anxious. Not excited about being in prayer. Not excited about reading God's word. All because why? I've been out of step with you. For a long time. And I want to repent. Before you for that. Amen. It's like you guys all have mirrors on your face. I'm really just kind of preaching at me. But God makes all things new. God rekindles fire. God restores callings. God brings newness of life 